well-reasoned arguments for the existence of God? Or is belief in God simply a matter of faith? How convincing are the classic arguments for God's existence? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat will be interviewing his guest, Doug Potter, as he explains five errors Christians make when presenting evidence for the existence of God. Here's Pat now with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we present the compelling evidence for faith in Christ and provide well-reasoned biblical answers for today's challenges. Can we make a logical and reasonable case for the existence of God? There are many who argue that you cannot prove God exists. It's all a matter of faith. Some pose the challenge, well, show me God. I can only believe what can be proven empirically or scientifically. A question you often hear is, if God made the universe, then who made God? Well, these are some common objections, and what are some common mistakes Christians make when arguing for the existence of God? To help us on this issue is our friend and becoming a regular guest here, Dr. Doug Potter. He is an avid writer, teacher, and speaker on Christian theology and apologetics. Doug has a Master's of Arts in apologetics and a doctorate of a ministry in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Doug has authored and co-authored several books and written numerous articles on apologetics. He has recently written a great article entitled Five Errors When Arguing for the Existence of God. So, Doug, welcome to Evidence and Answers again. Hi, Pat. It's great to be with you. Well, Doug, just real briefly, summarize for us the basic arguments for the existence of God before yeah. we go into the misconceptions here. Sure. Ab yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's, that's actually a, a really important thing to do, because I know that even if I were in my church, whether they were ninth graders or they were 90 years old, there would be people in my church that said, hey, I don't care about your heirs for arguing for the existence of God, because I don't even think you should be arguing for the existence of God. So we, we've really got to back up a bit. In fact, it wasn't all that long ago that I was actually given a book uh, to review in which that book actually said that the Bible nowhere argues for the existence of God and assumes the existence of God everywhere, and therefore we should do the same thing. And I thought to myself, you know, that's partially right and that's partially wrong. And one of the things that it's right about is that there's no formal, what we would call a philosophical argument for the existence of God in the Bible. However, the Bible does give us reasons for the existence of God and expects us to communicate and accept those reasons as being uh, showing that God exists. And, you know, one of the favorite places that I like to go to point this out to people is actually Paul's epistle to the Romans, in which in the, in the very first chapter, Paul says in there that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And that's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul expects people to be able to look at creation and know that an invisible divine God being exists who's distinct and separate from creation. 
And Paul right there gives a reason for the existence of God, and that's really where our first argument comes from, is creation itself. Now, we have really fancy philosophical terms to uh, formally describe those arguments, and that's really, and the term that's used for that is the cosmological argument. But really, uh, regardless of whether you call it that or not, you're just reasoning about creation to a creator. You're reading from effects that are found in the world, natures and things that are in the created world, to the fact that they must have a cause for their existence. And that's a cosmological argument. And right in there, Paul also mentions the other kind of argument, for it's evident within them, and I won't read it to you, but if you read over to chapter 2, Paul talks about a moral law within every human being. Well, naturally, it follows that if there's a moral law, that is, human beings accept that some things are always right and some things are always wrong. Murder is always wrong. Rape is always wrong. These things are always wrong in every culture. Well, man didn't just come up with that someday. It's built into who he is and what he is, and every moral law demands a moral lawgiver. And Paul really makes that point in Romans chapter 2 as well. And then there are other reasons that the Bible gives, and probably one of the most interesting places to go is actually the book of Psalms, or actually a number of the Psalms give evidence with regards to the existence of God. In fact, Psalm 19 uh, starts out, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day by day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Here it's talking about our next argument that we could possibly give, which is a what we would t- technically call a teleological argument, which is really just a design argument, that there are things found in the world that are so intricately designed, so specified, that it demands an intelligence or an intelligent designer. Now, I'm not talking about snowflakes. I'm talking about a distinction between just looking at a mountain versus looking at Mount Rushmore we automatically conclude that the wind and the rain and the water didn't cause Mount Rushmore with the president's faces on the side, but intelligence produced that. And when we look at creation, whether we look at it at a biological, microscopic level, uh, or we look at it at the macro level in terms of galaxies and astronomy, we're finding things are prepared for human beings at an astronomical level that makes conditions just right on this earth, all the way down to biological systems and components that demand there be a designer. And those are really the three major arguments that are put forth for the existence of God, cosmological arguments, moral arguments, and design arguments. Yes, Doug, those are three of the classic arguments for the existence of God. And how effective are they for arguing that a God does exist? That's a really interesting question. In fact, I I can remember teaching and, and being challenged with the question that we shouldn't use, or the objection, that we shouldn't use arguments for the existence of God because they don't work. And, you know, my, my, uh, my initial reaction, and maybe it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to that, is it doesn't matter if they work or not, because that's not how we determine what is true. If the arguments are true, it doesn't matter whether they work or not. That's a practical, works-based understanding of what is truth. And truth isn't what works. Truth is what corresponds to reality. And if the arguments, regardless of whether anyone is ever convinced by them, and regardless of whether anyone even uses them, it doesn't matter. If the arguments have premises 
that correspond to the world and reality and have valid conclusions drawn from those, such as God exists, then the argument is a true argument. And regardless of whether anyone uses them in their life with someone else, and I think that we should, don't get me wrong, or regardless of whether anyone is ever convinced by them, it doesn't really matter. The argument stands on its own. And, you know, some of the feedback that I've got from the article that I've read, that, that I wrote, and since it's been published, is you don't even think that the arguments demonstrate the existence of God. And I think that people have kind of raised that objection because they are only reading one side of the car, only listening to one side of the conversation, listening to the airs. If we actually, like I just went through, were to give some of these arguments in an in-depth presentation, I think people would see that I hold and that the arguments themselves actually are demonstrative. They demonstrate their conclusions because of the way they're constructed and because of the way they are, they are put together and because they correspond to reality. So I, I would actually affirm uh, against the, the whole realm of, of, of a lot of modern philosophy that goes on today that the arguments for the existence of God actually do demonstrate that God exists. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up, Doug, because some Christians get frustrated when they present these arguments and they're rejected by those whom they, you know, they are presenting it to and they seem to get rejected and say, well, it didn't work, therefore it's not effective or perhaps, you know, there's some question as to the validity of the argument uh, just because it didn't work. Yeah, you're, you're right, and and I'll, I'll tell you, I would I would point to Paul as as the example because not only in Romans does he give us reasons for God's existence, but we actually see him in Acts chapter 17, actually taking those reasons and putting them into practice with Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and these types of philosophers still exist today. They would be atheist and New Age people, and he actually uses creation itself to point to a creator, and it's interesting that he has a reaction that we should expect today as people who would go out and share our faith and attempt to evangelize people and then come up against objections such as the existence of God and then offer a reason or an argument as to why God exists. We should see that people will want to hear more of what we have to say. We will see people who that just outright reject us. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1 that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, no argument's going to alleviate that. That's a, that's, a, that's a willful problem, a moral problem, a problem of sin and depravity in their life for suppressing the truth. And then the other thing is some believed, and that's what we're hoping for, and that's why God uses us to go out and evangelize others, because some will believe, some will find our reasoning to be legitimate and valid and find it persuasive not because of craftiness of speech, but because it actually does demonstrate its conclusion that God exists. Right, Doug, you make the distinction several times, and I think it was a great one. You can get a person to believe that Christianity is true, or reasonable at least, but to get the person to believe in Christianity, that's a matter of the heart or the will, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Yeah, you're exactly right, and you can't, you cannot uh, ignore or push back the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in fact, the distinction you made is is actually made by uh, by our teacher. He was your teacher and my teacher as well, Dr. Norman Geisler, who makes the all important distinction that Christian apologetics—that is, the reasons that we give uh, for Christianity being true—are all related to convincing someone uh, cognitively or the mind that they are true. And for someone to actually come to have faith uh, doesn't 
require that reasons or evidence be given. That's just an existential belief step that they take that is more persuaded by the Holy Spirit. And our apologetics will never convince someone to believe in Jesus Christ or in God. Our evidence, our argumentation, and our arguments that we would give for the existence of God can only lead someone to believe that God exists or that Christianity is true. That's an all-important distinction. When it comes to believing in, when it comes to a commitment or a willful, volitional commitment upon them to believe in something, that is between them and the persuasion of the Holy Spirit. And I, I cannot force someone to believe, and the, even God uh, via the Holy Spirit is only working persuasively on them. They must be the ones that ultimately believe in God or in Christianity, and our apologetics and reasoning will only demonstrate that uh, God exists or that Christianity is true. Right. So apologetics is great in you know bringing the person to the point where they can say it's reasonable, but when the part when it comes to surrendering their heart and the will, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit uses apologetics as a tool in bringing someone to Christ because, as Dr. Geisler stated, God does not bypass the mind to speak to the heart. Isn't that right? You're exactly right. We have the privilege, I really count it a privilege to be used in conversations with people by God to deliver a truthful message and to defend that truthful message. And if in that conversation or in that encounter that I have, someone actually comes to believe in Christ, it is their step that they take via the Holy Spirit to come to believe in Jesus Christ. And I I count it uh, to be a miracle and an honor to be present when someone actually believes in Jesus Christ. And to be used by God in that manner is actually something that I, I, I just can't get over. It overwhelms me sometimes that God wants to use us, and that brings up the whole issue of the fact that if if God uses us and uses our apologetics, then He certainly wants us to be prepared. As as you well know, the the verse in First Peter three fifteen says to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being prepared, and that involves the training and learning apologetics, so that God can then use us when our heart is right, of course, with meekness and gentleness. But when the objection is raised or when the question is asked, God does want us to be prepared to give an answer so that the Holy Spirit can use us in the life of someone else. Right. So, Doug, often I get the question, is it apologetics or is it the Holy Spirit? And I say, well, no, they work together. God uses or the Holy Spirit uses our apologetics to communicate his message effectively to the mind and the heart. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, the Holy Spirit does uh, use our apologetics to communicate to people and uh, to bring them to faith. And that step that they take that is faith, that is a step that uh, certainly they can be uh, persuaded to, uh, and the Holy Spirit can work in their life and use our apologetics to bring it. But they must make that step. They must make that commitment and to come to faith. And again, uh, you're right, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that certainly uses us and our apologetic, our reasoning, uh, arguments for the existence of God and other truths in Christianity to bring them to that point. Yeah, great. Well, Doug, let's go through some of your the errors Christians make when arguing for the existence of God. Now, the first one you got here is arguments for the existence of God do not demonstrate the existence of God. Explain that one to us. Sure, I'll be I'll be glad to. You know, this is often a uh, something that is 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 made by people who are first exposed to even the concept or even the idea of arguing for the existence of God. 
one of the uh, misconceptions they have is that somehow these arguments are actually going to produce God or have them have an experience with God or make them see God face to face or something like that. And that's just not what these arguments are going to do. In fact, um, I'd like to make a distinction even with my daughter. Sometimes when I talk to her, in fact, I did this not too long ago with her. We're going through the 12 points that show Christianity true. And of course, you know that point number three is theism is true, that God exists is true. And one of the things that I pointed out to her with respect to the arguments that I gave her for the existence of God is that they don't function the same way that they do when we try to demonstrate truths of things found in our created world. In fact, I used the example of our pet cat, for example. If someone wanted to prove that we had a pet cat or someone wanted to prove what our cat was, what we would do is we would take all the characteristics of what a cat has, like felineness, the whiskers and the fur and the tail and the four legs and the ears and everything that we would describe as a characteristic of a cat, and we would construct an argument that basically shows that Doug Potter's pet is a cat and conclude that to be the case. And a lot of people think that somehow arguments for the existence of God are going to work that way or in that manner. And in fact, that's not the way they exist at all. And then I kind of uh, gave my daughter the example. Uh, sometimes we keep our pet confined to a section of the house, especially when we want to eat or we don't want to be bothered by the pet. Uh, we put our cat away. And I said, what if, for example, I were to open the door to let the cat out, to let our pet out? And let's say, for example... I was able to turn the doorknob and push on the door, and the door didn't open. And we pushed as hard as we could on the door, and the door just wouldn't open. Well, one thing I would notice is that it isn't my cat back there couldn't possibly have the strength to be pushing against the door, preventing it from being open. I would then possess knowledge, demonstrative knowledge, that something is preventing the door from opening. Uh, it should open, but it doesn't. Even though I don't know what's preventing the door from opening directly, I do have knowledge that something is preventing the door from opening. And that's really the way the arguments for the existence of God work. The cosmological ones, the teleological ones, uh, these kinds of arguments, because we look at creation, we know something must be responsible for them because they're what we call finite and contingent things. That is, they're maybes. They could cease to exist. The chair that I'm sitting in, the desk that's in front of me, the computer that's in front of me, my cat could cease to exist. I could cease to exist. Well, these are all, our world is filled with things that are maybes, not must-bes. But if our world is filled with things that are contingent, that are maybe existences, and could cease to exist, then something must account for their existence because they can't account for it themselves. Therefore, there must be something that must exist, just like there's something pushing against the door uh, when I'm trying to open it, and I have knowledge, not direct knowledge, but knowledge of something that's preventing the door from opening, there's something that must exist if the world is filled with things that are contingent and finite and changing. And of course, that what exists can't be contingent, finite, and changing. It must be infinite. It must be eternal. It must be unchanging. And that's what we get when we look at arguments for the existence of God, especially the kind of cosmological type arguments. Right. So these arguments build a reasonable case that there is a God, but it doesn't necessarily describe or tell us exactly what he's like. That's what you're saying, huh? 
Yeah, uh, there are some inferences that we can make, and that kind of leads into uh, maybe the second objection that you want to take a look at. But we can certainly make valid inferences from these arguments as to what God is like. And certainly we would know from this first objection or from cosmological-type arguments that what is causing everything to exist in the world can't be something else that's existing in the world. It must be something that's radically different and distinct from the world. And that's why I said it has to be the opposite of finite. It has to be infinite. It can't be something that's contingent. It has to be something that's eternal. It can't be something that changes. It has to be something that's unchanging. And so we must strip away all finitude or limitations uh, from what this cause is. And, of course, that is being then descriptive about what God is and what God is like. Yeah, that's a good point. Leads us into the second error. Arguments for the existence of God do not demonstrate the existence of the Christian God. Explain that one to us. Yeah, I I, I frequently get this. uh, You know, I teach at a seminary at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and this frequently comes up. A lot of the classes I teach involve giving demonstrations of the existence of God. And a, a lot of times my students will say, okay, you've established theism. That's fine. One God, and you know some things about him, infinite, eternal. I'll give you that. But it doesn't mean that you've established the Christian God, especially when they understand the Christian God to be the triune God or the Trinity, which I completely affirm. But I think that what people often miss is a distinction, a very important distinction that needs to be made between two types of theology that are going on on going on here. One is what we refer to as natural theology, that is reasoning about the world itself to conclude that God exists, that God is one, that he's infinite and eternal, necessary, and so forth. The other type of uh, theology that goes on is what I will call revealed theology, and this is where we study Scripture. We study the Bible, and I admit that there, there's an overlap between them. In other words, Scripture will give us, and natural theology will give us, that God is one, that He is eternal, that He is infinite, and so forth. And there's a good overlap there. But there are some things that the Bible reveals to us about God, that Scripture reveals to us about God, that we would never ever be able to come to or arrive on our own apart from Scripture. And that, of course, is truths like the Trinity or the triune nature of God, that God is one essence or one nature and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a gift or a revelation from God that comes from Scripture that we can't figure out by our own natural reasoning apart from Scripture. So this is really the distinction and the problem that is going on in instances like this. We can demonstrate by reason apart from Scripture that God is one and that He is infinite. And we can discover from Scripture that God is triune, and those are not incompatible truths. It might take a long time for me to flesh that out, so people might have to take that uh, on the basis of uh, me just uh, saying that to them, that it can be something that is fleshed out, that the Trinity or the triune nature of God is not incompatible uh, with natural theology or the demonstration that God is one. And one of the things that we do in order to actually demonstrate this to be the case, is we, I mentioned before, some of the attributes of God or some things that we have to attribute to God, like He is eternal, He is one, He is all-knowing, He is all-powerful. When we take a look at some of these 
attributes that we have to attribute to God when we strip away all the finitude, we also see that the Scripture actually affirms the very same things with respect to God, that God is all-knowing, that He's infinite. In fact, Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. So uh, here we have an instance where the Scripture is referring that God is infinite, and our argument apart from Scripture, also affirms that God is infinite and and eternal. Uh, The Bible affirms that God doesn't change his mind. God is not a man, Numbers 23, 19 says, that he should lie on our son of man, that he should change his mind. The Bible tells us that God doesn't change. And our argument would also say that God must be of the nature that does not change because he created everything that does change. Well, one thing that after we do this and kind of flesh all this out, one thing that we come to is that the God of our natural theology must be the God of Christian theology because, or revealed theology, because you can't have two infinite beings. You can't have two eternal beings. You can't have two necessary beings. To have two beings, you have to tell them apart. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting interview. We hope you enjoy Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. 